I'm incredibly excited um, to have Barry work here. Uh, I first came across his work um, over a decade ago when I was got interested in the pharmaceutical industry, um, and a friend who was a doctor said, "Well, if you have any interest at all in the pharmaceutical industry, you need to read um, this book called The Billion Dollar Molecule, uh, which is about the creation of um, now a South Boston-based company. Is that right? Yeah." Um, it's Boston Seaport-based company, uh, Vertex Pharmaceuticals, um, although at the time they were out of a garage, basically, in Cambridge. Um, an absolutely phenomenal book. Uh, I'm not the only one who thinks that. Um, what Fortune, I think, called it one of the 75 smartest books. Um, uh, so, And it is a, a fantastic book. One of the things that's very interesting about Barry is the breadth of his work. Um, this, the new book that we're going to be mainly talking about, The Antidote, is your sixth yes. your sixth book. Um, and uh, he's also written about um, a, a, a horrendous case uh, from the 80s when twins were born. One was born dead and had actually been dead for 24 hours, and um, the other had severe birth defects, and there was an ongoing malpractice suit that... Uh, really affected the lives of everyone involved in very painful ways. Um, a, a book uh, uh, about Newton Arvin, um, a scholar and a professor from the first half of the 20th century um, who is pink-listed. Uh, and um, 31 Days uh, about the White House, uh, about Gerald Ford, the beginning of his presidency. Um, and uh, we were just talking when we wrote up about how um, when Ford died, there were news trucks, right, camped out at your house. Uh, um, to try and try and talk to him, and then um, and I've not read uh, Banquet at Delmonico's, but um, it sounds like an absolutely incredible book. Uh, it's about the philosophers, scientists, politicians, businessmen, clergymen, and scholars who brought Charles Darwin's controversial ideas to America um, in the tumultuous years after the Civil War. So, this is someone who has covered a lot of ground in his career. Um, we're here today to talk uh, primarily about his newest book, um, The Antidote, which is uh, something that authors rarely get a chance to do, and that's uh, write a sequel. Um, this is 20 years after, uh, is that right, 20 years? 20 after, years. Um, after his first book on Vertex came out, uh, now he's written a second book about Vertex, um, uh, and be able to trace their path and look at what their hopes and expectations and promises were when they started out, um, and now where they are today is really incredibly fascinating. So we're going to start, um, I think Barry's going to start telling us a little bit about himself, and then he and I will have the conversation um, for 40, 45 minutes, uh, and then we'll open up for a And his, the antidote is on sale um, outside. It's the best $25 you'll spend today. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thanks, Seth, and thank you all for coming. Um, before we start talking about the book and writing, I, I want to start talking for a few minutes about my younger self, since, um, since back then the idea of my being here now in this place talking about this subject would have been completely implausible, absolutely unthinkable, but, but let me explain. Uh, from 1973 to 1980, I lived over in Cambridgeport near the BU Bridge on the third floor of a triple-decker. And uh, it was right after college. I had been an English major at a state school in New York, and I had piled up my share of 
failures and false starts. I was a I was a stacker at the BU Library. I was a, a special needs teacher in Boston during the first year of the busing crisis. I was a junior high school English teacher in Somerville. I ran a adolescent a school program for adolescent girls who were in lockup. And then at the end of that period, I was a room service waiter at the Hyatt Regency down the road. While on a lark, and as I now recognize out of desperation, I went to graduate school to learn journalism. Um, only two things remained constant for me during that whole period. One was my living situation, and the other was my opposition to MIT expansion. Um, back then, Sydney Street uh, was a forlorn stretch of derelict warehouses and weed-choked lots. It was the remnants of the old Simplex Wire and Cable Company site, which had been active, especially during World War II, and had declined and finally um, closed in the 60s. Um, Many long-term residents over in that area, and a lot of us local leftists got together to expose and, and oppose what MIT was hoping to do there, which was to build an R&D park. And um, I was suitably alarmed, as a lot of people were, about the beginnings of genetic engineering to feel that I needed to pitch in here. So we offered our apartment up for meetings, and we did extensive planning. We, we made uh, we silkscreen posters and T-shirts in our living room, showing MIT classically as an octopus. We um, we we marched, we demonstrated, we came to meetings at the at the here and at the city, and we also um, dug um, bricks and and um, and and pieces of uh, cinder block out of a, a lot on Brookline Street to turn it into reclaim it, turn it into a. Um, a community garden, and it's actually still there. If any of you know that neighborhood, it's it's still everybody gets in and works on it in the spring and summer, and they're still growing stuff over there. Anyhow, I loved living in that apartment, and I had this wonderful view from my standpoint. It was this gritty industrial tableau. Right across the street, there was a uh, a little pocket park, and then across from that was this one-story low-slung construction company warehouse, and then beyond that was the the St. Johnsbury Trucking Depot, and beyond that, the tracks, and then MIT, and then in the distance, the Prue and the Hancock Tower, which in 1976, when it was built, rained these giant glass 500-pound panels for a year until they figured out how to keep the, the windows in. So I, I started in journalism in 1980. I moved out to Western Massachusetts. I took a job working for a small daily newspaper. Um, but I really got my start in long-form narrative journalism when I went to work for New England Monthly Magazine in 1984. Um, and. Uh, I mostly covered education and economic issues. I didn't know anything about science at all, but I got what turned to be uh, you know, a decisive break in my career when um, in 1987, uh, one of our coworkers came in, said she had been at a, a bridal shower. She had gotten into a drunken conversation with somebody. He said something about some junior professor at uh, Harvard who was working in AIDS and was claiming that two very senior people, including his department chair, were, um, were stifling his research. And uh, I raised my hand. And I said, well, I'll go look into it. And little did I realize what I was getting into. Um, you know, I, as I said, I, the last science class I would take, had taken was in high school. This was, um, you know, these were before the advent of direct 
acting antiviral drugs. There was nothing for AIDS patients. AIDS was then a death sentence. It was still heavily stigmatized. The world of, and culture of AIDS research was secretive, c uh, competitive. Uh, there were, as you know, the famous you know, international fight over who had discovered the virus. There were patent fights and nomenclature fights. It was a, it was a, it was squalid, frankly. And um, it took me, it, it, David Baltimore, who was the founding director of the Whitehead Institute, Nobelist, had at one point called for a, a Manhattan Project in AIDS, and he was scoffed at and even ridiculed. So th this was, this is the culture that I had wandered into, and it, uh, it took me a very long time with that piece, six months, four drafts, before I realized that I had it right. And, um, but I had discovered something, and it, and, um, it impressed me and appalled me, which was the business culture of modern scientific research. I, my notions of how science operated were antiquated, uh, based largely on uh, you know books like um, the Microbe Hunters, mm -hmm. and uh, actually I actually had an aunt who wrote books for children about science, and I thought science was supposed to be altruistic and cooperative, and I hadn't seen this at all. So I, I got this notion that I, if I could get inside an academic lab someplace and watch for a while how things actually operated, I would understand better and could show what drove modern science. And um, so I started to approach some of the people that I had met in writing some magazine pieces. And uniformly, uh, these were academics now, they said, oh, that would, we couldn't possibly let you in. If they were MDs and they were over at the Harvard Medical Area, they said, well, we got, you know, we got, uh, doctor-patient confidentiality, we've got student-professor confidentiality, we've got university disclosure rules, we've got all these um, d disclosure prohibitions on our, uh, car, our, our, um, our research collaborations with industry. We couldn't, there's just no way we could let you in and do this. So, but then in the summer of 1989, I got a call from one of them who said, you know, I just got asked to be on the scientific advisory board of a brand new company in Cambridge. It's called Vertex Pharmaceuticals. The principal is a guy who's coming from Merck. Uh, he was a real star there, but he decided to leave and go out on his own. Maybe he would talk with you. So now I've been living in Western Massachusetts for nine years. And I drove back in. This was long before the days of MapQuest, much less GPS. And I'm driving through Cambridge Point. Oh, this looks familiar. And I, I, I can't remember exactly when I realized. It was probably when I turned the corner from Brookline onto Alston that Vertex was in that low-slung construction company warehouse that I had looked out my window for all those years. Was, at the same time, I had recognized the changes around me. The, Truck Depot was no longer there. It was actually a company that made X-ray telescopes. I tell people that when I, within five minutes of meeting Josh Boger, I decided that I wanted to write a book about him and his company. And um, the main reason was is that he was he was candid. He invited my questions. Um, he was obviously very smart, very audacious. Had big big plans. He beamed like a television tower. He was just kind of filled with. Um, with ambition and exuberance and excitement. But the, but the main thing was is that unlike the university professors that I had worked with, he didn't try to impress me with his high motives. You know, he was in business. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. And, and I never, the fact that, uh, that Vertex was not working in AIDS at that time, I thought was a problem. 
But I was so encouraged by his openness that I proposed to him, let me hang around for a couple of months and I'll write a magazine story. And he agreed. So in the fall of 1989, with my head down, that's how I got, um, I got started on Vertex. Um, you know, I, I, now that it's 25 years later, um, I, I, I've learned that there are a lot of mysterious connections that often come disguised as surprises. But, um, you know, so to be sitting here now, still mining the same story, um, at MIT, uh, is you know it, it, it's, it wasn't in the plans. It hardly seemed to be in the cards, and um, and it's interesting because Vertex. I drove through Cambridgeport on the way over here, and Vertex has just left. Really, the first major pharmaceutical company to leave Cambridge, move over to Boston. They're in a million square feet, two gleaming towers on the waterfront, and uh, and to drive by those buildings now which included the truck depot, which eventually became part of Vertex, and nine other buildings in that area. I mean, they basically gobbled up all of the, the piece of the neighborhood that I was most familiar with. It was like a ghost ship. There's, you know, there's still kind of tchotchkes and knickknacks in the windows, posters on the wall that people decided not to take with them. But it, it goes to show you that the things that you are you know, com most committed to in your 20s may not be the things that are necessarily aligned with your longer-term interests and goals in life. So um, that's how I'm here. That's how I got here. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, that's an incredible, it's an incredible story. I, 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 the first time I heard that from you, I was waiting for uh, you to turn the corner and find out that Vertex was in your old apartment. <laughs> that was a little bit too perfect. Um, so I guess I want to start out by asking you, uh, why do you think um, Boger was so candid and agreed to, to let you in at the beginning? I, I think for two very obvious reasons. One is he was setting out to change the world. He was absolutely convinced that he could do it, and he thought it would be interesting to have somebody along to record it all. The other was that Vertex, like every other small company, was... Uh, you know, was competing to raise money, and he thought anything that could raise the company's visibility at that stage would help. You know, when I got in there, the labs had not yet been opened. Um, they were jack the first day I was there, they were jackhammering the, the cement floor in the chemistry labs to lay down pipe. So I was there when the whole scientific staff could fit in Josh's purple bobble wagon. It was, you know, it was like right at the beginning. Um, I'm not even sure if I'd come in three or six months later when they actually had any science going on that he would have let me in. But the timing, I think, was fortuitous. Um, and he thought, you know, we, as anybody in his position would, you know, anything we do to get some attention right now would probably help. The level of access I got, I think, was surprising. But, um, and the level of access for the magazine piece? Like for the mag well, there wasn't really much going on. I mean, for the magazine piece... And you wrote that for New England Monthly? I wrote that for New England Monthly. Um, you know, there were two things going on. The scientists were getting geared up to get going, and they were, you know, they were champing at the bit. They were so eager to start. They had, all, they had all come from either Merck or other big pharma companies or from Harvard and Yale, and they just wanted to start. But the other thing, which was a constant throughout the magazine story in both books, is that Boger was in a, you know, just in a relentless chase after money. And so I, you know, I, he went down to a, uh, uh, an investor cavalcade in New York. This was at the, the, um, the, the, millennium, the Millennium Hotel, which was at the foot of the old World Trade Center. 
and it was two years after the 1987 crash, and there really weren't any investors there, but he went down anyhow to make his five-minute pitch. Remember afterwards he said, you know, it doesn't get any lower than this. I mean, we're talking silks, you know, fishnet stockings, he said. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, so I got a chance to sort of see the, the, the duality of what was going to be the main story, which is trying to get the science launched and trying to raise the money to support the science so they could actually get something done. And so then the piece came out in New England Monthly. Um, and did you know, did you already know that you wanted to write a book about the company? When, when we went down to New York for that investor event, I took Josh out for dinner and I said, you know, um, I'm just not going to see very much here. And, and I'd been, I should say, you know, I'd been thinking for a long time that I would like to write a book. And, and I should also say that having been at New England Monthly at that time, there was really only one kind of book, which was a hang-around book. Um, I'll explain. Um, <clears throat> New England Monthly was started by a guy named Dan Okrent, who's uh, known for his books, also known as an editor, known for inventing fantasy baseball. Fantasy baseball. Um, the first ombudsman of the New York Yeah, first ombudsman. Okay, so Seth knows. So Dan was great. And, and um, so the first, the first um, staff writer that Dan hired was Jonathan Haar, who was then a local newspaper reporter and left right before I came. In fact, I took John's job so that he could go out and write a book about a lawyer who was bringing an environmental case against companies in Woburn, Mass. This book turned out to be The Civil Action. So that was John. And <clears throat> Dick Todd was there, who was um, Tracy Kidder's book editor. In fact, Dick edited all my early pieces there. And, and you know, because of the emergence of books like Soul of a New Machine and some other things, there was only way to do, you know, I mean, when we talked about books at the magazine, it was you get in somewhere, you hang around for a protracted period of time, you take your chances, and you hope that something happens that you can write, you know, write a, a worthy book about. So in any case, I'd been thinking for a long time. I wanted to get in someplace, and I thought if I could get in here and really hang around for a long enough period, I might be able to do something substantial. So I approached Josh, and I said, well, you know, what if I could, you know, get a contract and hang out for a year and a half, two years, what would I see? And he said, well, hopefully we will have a, um, a lead compound in our lead project. That just means, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking decades away from actually having a drug, but a, but a compound that they had enough confidence in that they were going to move forward with. And he also said, and, and, and hopefully we'll have a $1 million research collaboration with a major pharmaceutical company that will benedict us. He, Josh uses benedict as a verb a lot. It would benedict us, show that somebody else thought that what we were doing was real enough and important enough to actually put up some money. So this, this is very thin, okay? I, I'm going off, I'm going to spend the next year, year, half, two years following this company with, with you know, rather modest goals, I thought. But I was so excited by him and by the people around him. Now the labs were up and going that I thought it was, it was worth a shot. And so when he said yes at that point, um, did you have a moment where you thought, holy crap, what did I get myself into? What if nothing comes out? <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, you, I mean, that's the risk. With that's a, you know, the hang-around books are great when they work out. Um, they're not <laughs> great right. if, you know, if you can't produce a book at the end. But, you know, it was, like I said, it was de rigueur. It was the only kind of book that I could even conceive of 
was, was just getting in there and becoming a fly on the wall. Um, I should say, Josh didn't exactly say yes. What he said was, um, I think it's a great idea, but I'm not going to spend any of my capital with the board. You're going to have to go and convince them on your own. The board at that time were the venture capitalists who had put up the money. So I went to the mall. I went to see Benno Schmidt in New York, and I called Kevin Kinsella, who was the founder. And they all said yes. And then I, but I had to convince every single one of them. And the, the last guy was um, was an old Yankee banker, and his office was at the top of the State Street Bank building downtown, overlooking the harbor. So I'm sitting there, and I'm just thinking, this is it. You know, this is my wall. It's not going to happen. And I made my pitch. You know, and from his standpoint. What did he care if I was in? Or what value could I have added that wouldn't have made? But I said what I had to say, and he finally said to me, don't get in their way. So at that point, I had the access I needed. I had the magazine piece, which served as a, as a proposal, a book proposal, and I got a contract from Simon & Schuster to, um, to write the book. So that was great, except that now I, you know, what was going to happen? I had no idea. It's interesting to me that no one, on, neither Josh nor anyone on the board, um, it sounds like raised the specter of publicity being bad publicity. Um, especially, you know, even assuming that that's going to come out four years or three years after right. that point, um, they were still going to be in a, in a position where they were very actively looking for funding. Right. Well, the nice thing about using a magazine story as a kind of a template for a book is you get to test out the material. They get to see what you do. I mean, there can always be betrayal, but um, I think they were convinced after the magazine story that I was going to do a reasonable job. Um, they had seen my other work, and uh, you know, it, it helps to have a you know a body of work and also a reputation. Um, but. Um, you know, and, and I shouldn't say there were no strings attached. There was one string attached, which was that they wanted to make sure that they could vet the manuscript totally for uh, um, proprietary disclosures. They didn't want me running off with you know, secrets that I had seen and publishing them. Um, they needed to be able to control that. Right. And I respected that. Right. It, it's, it's, um, uh, I think it's the antidote. Is, that, is the antidote where you start out talking, where Josh is talking about arrogance? Yes. And how? Um, one thing I actually really liked is how you, you uh, set up the parallelism in the two books of um, starting at the World Trade Center and then starting at the Boston World Trade Center. Um, but uh, um, it, it strikes me that there is a, a particular type of arrogance to let someone hang around because the assumption also is that um, the person who's being hung around on is not going to do anything during that time mm -hmm. that they're not going to want people to know about. Right. I mean, it's not just trusting you. Yes. It's also trusting themselves not to kind of fall on their face. <clears throat> Josh has very high regard for his abilities. Right. And, <clears throat> and, um, yeah, and he should have. You know, I mean, th th I should mention, for those of you who don't know the story at all, is that when Josh left Merck, Merck was far and away the number one drug discovery laboratory in the world. And it was also the most admired corporation in America for seven years in a row. Every magazine poll, it was... It's shocking to me. I mean, the notion today of a <laughs> pharmaceutical company being among the most admired, yes. it's, yeah. it's astounding. You know, it was, I mean, part of that was that it was tremendously profitable, but a part of it is that it had, you know, it had, um, it had high motives, and it did have, uh, you know, kind of a corporate presence that, was, that, that added to the world, and that um, they, you know, when, when Merck got into looking for protease inhibitors for HIV, there was a whole sense, even among activists, that the cavalry had arrived. Um, you know, they, they were 
the gold standard. So for somebody to leave there at the peak of their um, influence and, <coughs> and credibility and say, you know, they don't know how to do it anymore. I know how to do it better. You would need somebody who had a pretty strong sense of his own, uh, you know, of his own um, possibilities. But he's also, you know, I, I, I've had hundreds of conversations with him. I don't think I've ever heard him use a curse word. So I think he's, you know, I, I, in, he's, he's can be outlandish. He can be um, very outspoken. He doesn't, um, he doesn't sugarcoat things. But I think he also has a sense of himself that he could control this, <laughs> this situation. And, um, you know, that, that comes from having, I think, a good, you know, both a high regard for yourself and a, a, an outrageous sense of possibility and a, and a feeling that you know how to make things that are pie in the sky actually happen and a, a remarkable amount of self-control, which I think kind of adds to the package. And, and one thing that I had not realized um, is that the, the, I guess the way Vertex set out trying to, wanting to make drugs, which is creating them from scratch as opposed to improving on compounds that are already out there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I had not realized that that pre-Vertex was not something that was being done at all. No, it really wasn't. You know, the, since the 40s, the main way that drugs have been discovered is through uh, microbial screening. And what this means is you get a little sample of dirt or sludge or something from some remote corner of the earth and you cook it up in a fermentation broth and then screen for active chemical compounds against some kind of biological target, you know, in a dish. That's where most of the great drugs came from and continue to come from, actually. You know, because Microbes are the world's most prolific producers of intricate um, small molecule compounds. So, but what in the 80s, with the advent of, uh, you know, when it became easier to solve the structures of proteins when, there with, when computer graphics had developed to the point where you could put on a pair of 3D glasses and actually kind of see the interactions of atoms on a screen and, and you know, software development and some other things, people began to think, you know, we can be smarter than just panning for these. We can actually build them piece by piece, atom by atom. And, and Merck was intrigued enough by this notion that they put Boger in charge of a unit to try to do this, but it was, it was a hidebound place with layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy and when Bogus tried to start to pull together the pieces of this, he was just crossing too many yellow lines, which is really what forced him out and made him decide that he had to go out on his own. And one, one challenge um, uh, that I would think you would have going into this is, um, and this comes up a lot when you're writing about science, is the actual practice of doing science is excruciatingly boring most mm -hmm. of the time. Um, and certainly in, 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 in drug development, most of it is sitting in labs looking at a microscope. Um, uh, how did you approach that and how did you tackle that? Because there is a fair amount of science in these. Sure. Um, you know, so when I got there, as I said, there were probably a half dozen scientists. I stayed through um, 90 and through the summer of 91. They were in a very competitive area. They were trying to, um, they were trying to figure out um, how a, a couple of drugs, immunosuppressive drugs, cyclosporin and something that was then known as FK506, I don't know what the trade name or the generic name for it is now, but there are two drugs that were 
on, on the market that disabled the immune system and helped to helping people who had organ transplants um, not reject their transplanted organs. The idea of a broad spectrum immunosuppressive drug for treating a whole host of autoimmune diseases was very hot. Crohn's disease and lupus and multiple sclerosis and a number of others. And they got into this very competitive area and the, the focus was on trying to isolate the protein target, purify it, um, crystallize it so that it could be solved through x-ray crystallography and then, start, and then start to model new compounds in order to show this iterative process of what was then called structure-based drug design. And uh, they got through a lot of it during that period. And I, you know, so I had a natural narrative flow, which is I basically just followed the, the protein. I followed the, the first guy that I wrote extensively about was the protein scientist, a guy named John Thompson, who was off the charts in terms of his commitment and passion to the work that he was doing. So I'm, I'm answering your question by saying they were really passionate. Right. Okay, what they, what they lacked in results, they more than made up for with passion. And now that I was inside, I could, I could write about that. So that, that book, I think, does a lot to explore the motivations of individual scientists. In fact, a lot happened during that period, way more than Josh had promised me. I mean, not only did they, um, and, and then there was always the business story, which was happening right, right. concomitantly. So I go from the labs to the business meetings, back to the labs, you know, then travel with Boger and Rich Aldrich, who was the chief business guy, to try to raise money. And, and it all kind of came to a crescendo when, in 1991, with barely anything to show, there was a biotech bubble and Vertex went public. So not only did they not just get their million-dollar benediction, they actually went, you know, they, they had an IPO, which was great. So I got more, much more material than I imagined I was going to get. And, um, but as it turned out, you know, most of science is failure, and this whole project that they were working slaving on turned out to crash and burn because they discovered at the end of this that they were, they were investigating the wrong target, that the, that the, the target how molecule. How many years had that been? Uh, two, two. Right. two, two years of, you know, 20 hour days, 100 plus hour weeks, they were barking up the wrong tree. Um, but as I learned, that's how it goes. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't always work out. In fact, it very seldom works out. And so uh, in, in that book, um, how did you decide what an endpoint would be? Well, I was running out of money, so that's a good that, yeah. that was part of it. Um, you know, I also... Who was your editor at Science Juicer? Bob Bender. Oh, yeah. He's my editor. Oh, is he? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, Bob was very patient. That wasn't a problem. But um, He's a patient guy. Yeah. Yeah. He works with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, there, they had the IPO, and then there was going to be a, a conference in Pittsburgh where these, this class of immunosuppressive drugs was the focus. And... Um, and I, I, about nine months before that happened, I thought that, that'll have to be my end point because I've got to sit down and write this thing. I know it's going to take me at least a year and probably more like a year and a half. So um, it, was, it was sort of arbitrary, but I, you know, it rounded out the story enough. And as it turned out, um, there's a subplot in this, which is that one of Vertex's scientific advisors was a guy named Stuart Schreiber, whose name you may know. Schreiber's at Harvard, but he's also at the Broad Institute. And, um, 
and they kicked him out because they, they didn't trust him. And then they became direct competitors in trying to figure out what these, these immunosuppressive drugs were doing. And Schreiber, their, you know, their arch competitor, figured it out and announced it at this, um, this scientific meeting in Pittsburgh, which sent the, most of the scientists into you know, wailing and shrieking, but didn't hardly phase Boger at all because you know, he had his eye on the horizon and he felt that they, you know, even with the failure of this program, they had enough other stuff up and going that they were going to, this was not in the long run going to affect them too terribly much. And then I went back and wrote a, a, um, a, 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 an epilogue for the hardback and then went back and wrote a second epilogue for the, for the paperback. So it actually, the first book actually spans almost four and a half years. And so uh, when did the paperback come out? Was that in 94? 94. So um, you obviously weren't following Vertex all the way from then to now. What got you interested in them again? You know, it, I, I was always interested. For a little while, I bought a little stock. I lost money. I, I, uh, I, you know, there were a couple of the scientists who I'd become pretty friendly with. I stayed in touch with them. I stayed in touch with Josh. I was watching the company grow. Um, in 2006, um, I picked up the Times one morning, and there was a story on the top of the business page. Vertex had discovered a, a molecule that they thought was going to be effective against hepatitis C. Turned out to be their first solely owned drug many years later. But the, op the, the lead was Joshua Boger may have finally found his billion dollar molecule. So that, that got my attention. So I, I was, you know, was watching them and thinking about them, and I went off and wrote these other books that Seth mentioned. And then, um, and then in, you know, and I knew they were getting close to getting approval for this hepatitis C drug. And, and in the fall of 2010, since you're a journalistic audience, I'll tell you this story. Ordinarily, I wouldn't bother going into it, but I think you might be interested. Um, my last book came out in 2009, which was a terrible time to publish a book. Yes. Did you have that opportunity? Uh, I, mine came out in 2011, uh, which was not much better. Yeah, than okay. Uh, the, the publishing it's in, only getting worse. The publishing industry really crashed along with everything else you know, after the financial crash. So I came out with this book, and it was about Darwinism and the Gilded Age, and it got wonderful reviews, and it completely tanked in the stores. I mean, for lots of reasons, which I believe had nothing to do with the book itself. There were too many Darwin books. It was the, the 150th anniversary of the publication of, of uh, Origin of Species and Darwin's 200th birthday. And, and it was right after the crash and Obama's inauguration. Anyhow, um, I, I started, as I always did, proposing new projects to my editors, and I was not getting good response. Um, I really started to worry, and then in 2000, started to worry that you weren't I was starting to worry that I had run out my string. Yeah, um, just because you know the, it is a truism. Unfortunately, it's not ironclad. But when you go to a publisher and you propose a book now, the first thing they look at is the sales of your last book. Right. You know, if you can overcome that, great. But that's where that's where the conversation. Less so with nonfiction than fiction. I think so. Yeah, if you come up with a good subject, you're okay. But but that that really is their first metric. Right. How the, how did your last book do? And my last book didn't do well. So in any case, <laughs> I was actually thinking about writing a biography of Jackie Gleason. Um, golden Age of Television. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what I. Would, I mean, I had so many ideas in the drawer at that point that I was just churning. I wanted to write a book about Sputnik. I had all these ideas, and I got a um, an email from my agent saying, 
I'm sitting on the train from Princeton to New York with Alice Mayhew. I'll mention, tell you about Alice in a second. And she'd like to know if you'd be interested in writing a book about the first, the George H.W. Bush administration, Pop, Pop Bush. Um, I had written a book about Washington, and that's why um, I assume my name came up. And I was not interested, but of course I said, there's nothing I would rather do. <laughs> and, um, and so I got in conversations with Alice, who's a wonderful editor, a senior person at Simon & Schuster. She's edited all, she edited all the President's Men and, um, and all of Woodward's books since then, and Doris Kearns Goodwin, and... and um, my uncle. Who's your uncle? Uh, Robert Mnookin. Oh, Doesn't know any, okay. Know so so I, had, you know, I had somebody who was interested in me, and that was good, and I, I, so I, I did some heavy lifting over the next couple of months, coming up with Washington proposals. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't really want to do another Washington book. That, you know, Vertex looks like it's just about positioned to be really interesting again. So after we exhausted all these Washington ideas, I, um, I said, well, I, oh, John Carp, who's the publisher, said, you know, what about biotech? And I said, listen, I only know one story. It's a really good story, and I think it's just about to climax. And uh, he said, well, Go find out if you can, you know, if you can do it. So I contacted Boger, and I came in. We had lunch, and he said almost the same thing to me that he'd said previously, which is, I think it's a good idea, but I can't use any of my own capital to get you in. You're going to have to convince them on your own. Now he, he was no longer CEO; he had been ousted in a palace coup, which I didn't quite understand at the time. I thought he just retired, but he was no longer CEO, but he's still on the board. And he said, my brother Ken, who I knew from the first book, who was then chief outside counsel and now was um, chief counsel for the company, go talk to Ken. So I approached Ken Boger, and he said, I'll, I'll see what I can do. You know, now Vertex is not 12 people, it's 2,000 people. It's in this last year, the last year before they got approval for this hepatitis C drug, they burned $755 million. Okay, so they're, you know, they're losing money at a fantastic rate. They're about to launch their first drug. They've got a new CEO. Um, and Ken managed to convince Matt Emmons, who had takeover running the company from Josh, that it would be a good idea, again, to have somebody in and that I could be trusted. Um, you know, I owe Ken a great debt because, I, I, you know, I, I think it's highly unlikely that I would have gotten in anywhere the first time. I think it's I can't imagine anybody getting into a drug company at this stage and getting that level of access. If you hadn't done the first If book. I hadn't done the yeah, first book. Right. And, then if, and if I didn't have somebody, you know, their, their general counsel saying, we can handle this. Right. Um, you know, even if the CEO, you know, you were mentioning your story with the, the Red Sox. Right. Even if the CEO at Vertex was interested, if the general counsel said no. Well, that actually that, was my first point of contact was the general counsel. Oh, was it? Red Sox, yeah. Okay. And well, she told the owner to let me do it. Really? So, yeah. yeah. Because, because the, you know, the drug industry now is a target for all kinds of investigations and lawsuits. Deservedly. You know, I mean, there, you know, there, there's a, there are so many um, abuses within the industry, you know, from, you know, concealing data to off-label marketing to, you know, to outright fraud, to bribing doctors, to, you know, patent infringement. I mean, it's just, the list just goes on and on. So if I didn't have the lawyer on my side, I don't think I ever would have gotten anywhere. But um, Ken spoke with 
Matt and got back to me and said, okay, you know, we're going to let you in. It's not going to be the same as last time, but, uh, but give me some time, which I thought was great. Um, when I finally, I also had to get the, the approval and acceptance of their communications person. Um, and she was very anxious, and I think there were other people who were very anxious. But, um, but Ken was patient, and uh, you know, when, I, uh, when I came in initially, it was, I was in, but I couldn't, I was sort of bound. I, you know, I, asked, I would ask to go to meetings, and they would say, no, 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 we can't let you in on that one. No, we can't let you in on that one. They, at the time, they were starting to prepare for their... Um, their advisory committee hearing before the FDA, which for any drug company is, that's showtime. I mean, that's who you have to go convince if you're gonna get your drug approved. And I wanted to go and sit in on the practice sessions and they said, no, you can't do that. But, but over time, I got a you know, security badge. I, they gave me a cube to work in. I never had a cube before. Um, and, and I got in, you know, I didn't get in everywhere, but I got into a lot of places that I frankly didn't even expect starting out. Um, you know, the most interesting of them, I, for me, were the disclosure meetings. You know, this being a science-based company, um, the disclosure of clinical results is the most controlled, most fraught um, thing that they do. Because if they, you know, if they, if, even if they, th if, if they're not careful about what they imply about their results, or if they, if, you know, if they present them too generously, or uh, you know, they can really run into trouble. They'll raise expectations for people um, unfairly, wrongly. That, you know, so, so, but I got to sit in on these disclosure meetings, and then after a time, you know, I pretty much had um, access wherever I needed it. And so um, this actually goes back and relates to the first book. What was the company's reaction when Billion Dollar Molecule came out? Um, I, as I said, you know, I promised them they could read it before publication, so Josh read it, and Rich Aldrich, who was the head of business read it, and Josh's comment to Rich was, we can use this. Um, it's interesting, the way, but I, you know, I, I don't, th I, over, I, they were pleased, you know, it made them, I mean, it made them look kind of wild and arrogant and, and um, but very smart and very determined, and I don't think that they were, you know, there were individuals who I think were a little troubled about how exposed they had become, but I, I don't think that Josh used the book effectively to raise money, although he may have. Where he really used it, and I think it shows in the organization to this day, is when somebody was thinking about leaving Merck or leaving Harvard or leaving Yale or leaving Novartis and coming to work at this company, you can hand them the book and say, this is who we are. This is what we're about. If this is interesting to you, if this is what you want to join, and, and I think they use it as a recruitment tool more than anything else. And did that, did that make you uncomfortable at all? As using it as a recruitment tool? Yeah. No, because I, you know, I think it's, I mean, I, I just ended up being extremely impressed with the scientific culture there. They, these people were dead serious about doing good science. And, um, you know, I, if it had been another story, if I thought that they were, you know, um, if I didn't think that they were as high-minded about the science, I, it would have been something else. But I, you know, at least that part of it, um, I, I felt very comfortable with. So I didn't have any problem with that. I think, you know, if, if I was aware that they were, you know, trying to interest investors by by um, you know using the book as a kind of a um, 
a brochure for I, that would have troubled me. But right. no, I, I was very pleased actually that they felt that they could that this was the story that they could tell to prospective scientists, and they thought that that was something that they could use. So one big shift, in addition to the changes in the publishing industry in between the 90s and today, is, um, as we sort of touched on briefly, there's been a huge shift in the perception of pharmaceutical companies. Um, and when you thought about doing another book, uh, was that something that, you, that, that came into mind at all? Did you see that as a challenge? Um, a bit. You know, I, I have to say, I, you know, I went off in all these other directions for uh, almost a you know, 15, 16 year period and um, wasn't paying that much attention to pharma. I mean, you know, I ended up researching the Vioxx scandal, which is the thing that brought Merck way down. If you're not familiar with it, there are these drugs called COX-2 inhibitors, Vioxx, Celebrex, a couple of others, and they were um, big pharma, had huge hopes for these drugs the end of the 20th century, beginning part of um, this century, because they were effective painkillers and they didn't cause the kind of GI problems that a lot of people have when they take painkillers. And as it turned out, uh, even, even back then I remember people saying, you know, there are going to be other risks with these. Well, um, heart attack, stroke, um, serious health risks, and you won't get a stomachache. No, However, you yeah. Have well, Merck Merck Mer knew about these risks for at least four and a half years, from around from 2000 to 2004, and denied them. This is the most. This you know, 20 years ago, this has been the most admired corporation in America. They denied the risks. They went after. Uh, they went after um, researchers who challenged their findings. Um, they, um, they, they actually created a phony journal to publish articles that were supportive of their science. Uh, you know, it was just, uh, just appalling. But I, I didn't know all this at the time. I just knew that Vioxx had been taken off the market. So I didn't realize how bad things were in big pharma. I, you know, now I, I understand you know, that somewhere around 2005, 2006, public, um, you know, public sentiment surveys showed that pharma was in as low regard as big tobacco. But I wasn't even Still aware of that. Journalists, <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and, and lawyers. Right. And a couple of others. But really, you know, so I, I wasn't quite sure. I didn't know as, I, I understood that big pharma had fallen. I didn't realize how far. And I didn't know how much of this was going to be in my story, as it turns out, quite a lot. So that was my next question. Is so you um, they said okay, come on back in, mm -hmm. um, and then what was the story that you ended up with by that? Well, I knew that they were going to be launching their the first drug under their own name, and this was uh, you know the, from the beginning, Boger attempted to distinguish Vertex by I think two things. One was they weren't going to do what the rest of the industry was doing, which was um, trying to incrementally improve on existing treatments that they could then market the hell out of. So that, for instance, Lipitor, its best-selling drug of all time, $13 billion a couple of years ago, now off patent, is the fifth statin drug. Not really very different from the other four statin drugs that had already been approved. But, uh, but given what had happened with pharmaceuticals, direct-to-consumer advertising, you know, all the ads that we see on the TV news, the model for pharmaceutical development had become just come up with something that's a little better than the competitors have and then, you know, pull out all the stops to market it to doctors and to patients. So Vertex started saying, 
at, w with Josh saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to go for big breakthroughs against major diseases that, for which there aren't other treatments. And um, so I knew that they were going to be getting approval for their hepatitis C drug in 2011. Um, and this is a drug that doubled the cure rate and halved the treatment time for the leading cause of advanced liver disease, including liver cancer and the leading cause of transplant. So this, was, this fit that category. I also knew that they had another project, um, which was pretty far along, but I didn't know much about it. And this was going to be the first drug to treat the underlying cause of cystic fibrosis. This is, in a way, this is a much, much bigger story but it was not nearly as advanced as, as the, the hepatitis C story. So it's, it's in the book, but it's, it, you know, this kind of central spine of the book is going through the approval and initial marketing for, of, the, hep for the hepatitis C drug, which became the fastest drug launch in history. In the first 12 months of selling their hepatitis C drug in CVEC, Vertex made $1.45 billion. This is gonna be now surpassed by a lot by the, the new hepatitis C drug that Gilead just brought out called Sovaldi, which is another story entirely. But so I had, you know, in, this, in the same sense in the first book, I had, you know, I was just following one project along. I knew I needed a, you know, a thread that would at least carry me through a lot of it. But, but for Vertex to, to introduce this drug was more than that. It was introducing itself. After 25 years in business, it was going to be selling drugs directly to the... 3.6 billion yes, dollars. After, yes, they had, they had had two profitable quarters before 2011 in almost 20... Out of, out of 100, right? About, at least. Years, well, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, so it was going to be a big emergence for them, too, and I knew I was going to be telling a big business story as well. And then, and then this, you know, the cystic fibrosis story became so compelling to me that that became... The, the third main strand running through the narrative. So I had access to the company all through 2011. The end of 2011, Matt Emmons stepped down and they hired a new CEO, a guy named Jeff Lydon. He was not comfortable with me being around. I gave back my security <laughs> badge. I said goodbye to my cube and I went home and started writing, although I realized that the story wasn't quite done. So I, the story actually runs through the middle of 2012 and actually, um, it gets more and more compressed at the end because I, 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 I couldn't quite end it. I was writing along and another thing would happen and another thing would happen, another thing would happen. And then finally last year, just about a year ago, the week of the marathon bombing, Vertex released new data, phase two data about its cystic fibrosis drug and its stock went up 60% virtually overnight, same, same week as the, the, the marathon bombing. So that was a convenient place for me to just tie it all together and end it. And so why, why, why do you say that the cystic fibrosis drug, that's actually a bigger story than the hep C drug? Okay, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this and researching this more. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things about these books is that you think that you're going to be done. You're, you're never done. Because um, the stories continue and they kind of command your attention. Cystic fibrosis, as many of you probably know, is a, is a drug that affects the lungs primarily, but also the digestive tract, any place in the, in the body where there are epithelial cells. And, and there's a protein on the surface of the epithelial cell called CFTR. It stands for cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator. It's a, what's called an ion channel. It lets salt and water through. And as long as the salt and water can run through, the, it can clear 
what's on the outside of the cell. If the salt and water is not running through, particularly in the lungs of CF patients, they get a buildup of a very thick, sticky mucus. It's the consistency of oatmeal. So, so people with CF have very serious lung disease, but other problems as well, digestive issues. And, and oh, thanks to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation over the last 40 years, there have been tremendous improvements in antibiotic regimens and, and um, other, other um, treatments that make living with CF much more possible. So when I was a kid, the life expectancy of people with CF was you know, somewhere in the middle teen years. Now I think it's probably on average in the late 30s. Vertex was approached by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And they said, you know, we know what the cause of this is. It's broken CFTR. So why don't we go in there and see whether we can actually come up with something to fix CFTR? And um, they started looking and they came up with a number of molecules that actually do this. Now the problem is, and this is where it gets really, I think, interesting and important, is that there are 1,800 different mutations that can result in broken CFTR. And Vertex came up with its strongest lead initially for one mutation that 4% um, that of patients have. So they knew if they were going to go forward with this, they were going to be excluding 96% of patients, at least initially. Now, they're fully committed to the project, and they're working on combination therapies that they think and, and believe will eventually end up being um, useful for almost all patients with CF. But this is what's called personalized medicine, which is, you know, from Francis Collins on down, what we've been hearing is the future of medicine, where we understand much better the genetic profile of the individual with the disease, and we treat them with a drug that will be specific to them. It'll work where it's supposed to, and, and, and it's very smart, and, you know, for the patients who have the right kinds of genetic defects, um, it's, a, it's a godsend, and it's a world changer. Um, it's complicated by the fact that the numbers are very small, and we see this also in cancer research now. You know, Ten years ago, if you had lung cancer, everybody got the same treatment. Well, they've since discovered that, uh, you know, a, a lot of people with lung cancer have a particular genetic defect that makes them... Um, makes them uh, the, the right patients for certain drugs and the wrong patients for other drugs. And, and, and this is great. You know, if we know beforehand who to treat and who not to treat, that's terrific. But it, again, it gets to the issue of drugs being just as expensive and just as time-consuming and just as risky to try to, dis to, develop. to discover and develop for a very, very, very smaller number of patients. Well, and, the, and, and one outcome of that is, and this occurred with the CF drug, right? It was, it was $307,000 The price is extremely high, okay? It's 307000 Although Vertex, like many companies, and I think, um, you know, rationalized that price by the fact that it did take 13 or 14 years to discover this drug, and the patient population is small, and it is very expensive. But also, they separate access from price. And it's, a, and it's an interesting question to address, okay? Nobody pays that $307,000, at least in this country, as far as I'm aware. If, if, you, if you can't afford it, Vertex will give you the drug. You know, selling a new drug in the United States is different from selling anything else, because the consumer, you and me, is not really the customer. The customer is the doctor. But then the customer is not the payer. 
the payer is an insurance company or the government or a managed care company. So what you've got to do is impress the payers that it's worth spending that kind of money. And they have done that exceedingly well in this country so that if you qualify for this drug, if you've got the right genotype, you get, nobody argues with paying that $300,000 a year. Um, so it, it gets to a whole pricing model that is just you know, coming to the fore, which I think we're going to have to deal with really soon. As soon as there are more, more of these drugs with more patients, the costs are going to be high, and then they're going to affect the basic cost arrangements. But they haven't so far. So it's different in England and in New Zealand and Australia and Canada, where, um, where you know, the, the government can't just write a check for everybody who needs this. So there have been, and, and also where governments are able to negotiate prices with drug companies, which they don't do in this country, except outside the VA, except inside the VA, excuse me. So it, this is, we're at the, you know, the cutting edge of something that I think is going to be huge that very few people have really given a lot of thought to or understand. That's why I think the CS story is so right, interesting. Right. Um, well, I have plenty of other questions, but I want to open it up. Uh, to all of you, I'll give you a chance to ask questions. Cynthia. This is something that you said as an aside, um, and I'm wondering how it affected uh, coming back to the story later, or, or kind of from an ethical perspective. You mentioned that at a certain point you had bought stock in yeah. the company and lost money and whatever, and that kind of caught my attention because that's something that I feel like with anything I report on, I sort of try to separate all of that. Well, so how, how did you, what, what, you were done with the book at that point, like what, how did? Yeah, I, you know, this was probably, the book came out in 94, I probably bought the stock in 2003 or something. I, I thought, I, you know, it was long after I was publicizing the book, the book had, you know, gone to the, the back of the store, if it was in the store at all still, and I just thought, you know, I, I'm never going to do anything with these people. I mean, as soon as I realized that I was, I, I had bought some for my children, I sold it. Nobody in my family has any Vertex stock and never will again, because at this point I think, you know, I'm probably going to get asked questions about Vertex uh -huh. for, for a long, long time. So, no, I'm, I'm well aware of the possibility of that. <laughs> That I conflict. No, no, it was, in, it was in this kind of 2003, 2007 period. I thought, I don't know anything about the stock market, but I do know that these are, you know, these are de determined, committed, smart people. And, and as I said, I'm one of the few people who managed to lose money on the company because <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't really, I didn't know when to buy it and I didn't know when to sell it. But um, yeah, you know, th that was my brief experience <laughs> as an investor. Yeah. Yes? So uh, there's a lot more science in the first book. Yes. And the second book, and you know, partly for obvious reasons, because we're really came from just doing science to actually doing business. Right. Um, but what were the major changes you actually saw in the scientific culture? Uh, you know, just apart from this obvious fact uh, between the '90s and, and the 2000s. Well, you know, I, I have to say, as soon as I got inside and I realized what was going on in the company, I realized that this was going to this book wasn't going to take me into the labs much. It's in, you, for the second For the second book, yeah. yeah. Because what they were doing was they were about to launch a drug, so they were building a commercial organization. They were still finishing out the clinical piece of that. Um, you know, the final, you know, the, the, the late stage trials and then getting that information into the FDA. The, the general, you know, building out of an operational business, which is something else, you know, when you burning through hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but you're expected the next year to make that up and more, 
that becomes your focus. So, so I didn't really get in the labs much. I mean, I did, I, I, th there were a number of scientists who had been there initially who were still there and who were doing, I thought, just as interesting work as they had been back then. But, um, I, you know, there's a, there's a significant, um, almost a takeout in the middle sections of the book about how uh, maybe 16, 17 years in, Boger realized that, um, that they, they were going to become a commercial company and that if Vertex was going to survive as Vertex, they needed to shore up and sort of find an intellectual home for the thing that had driven the scientists in the early days. You know, keep it as a you know, patient-centered, research-driven enterprise as opposed to what, you know, all the things that Big Pharma had become. And many of the initial torchbearers were still there. You know, the, most of the people up in senior management were people, either them or people that they had hired. So the spirit, I think, was still in the labs. And, to the, and, and, and I should also say that all the cystic fibrosis work actually happened in San Diego at, um, at a remote site that Vertex had bought. It used to be a company called Aurora Biosciences. And I went out there and that was a revelation because um, this, they were just as, as committed and just as, um, had just as high scientific standards, I felt, as the original Vertex people. But, so they had managed to kind of combine these cultures and it seemed to me that even throughout the organization, they still had this commitment. Um, but, you know, I, I just didn't get a chance to hang out with the scientists to the extent that I was able to because I was really focused on what the executive team was doing. And they have a third site also. They have five. Oh, okay. um, they've one in Oxford, England, one in um, Montreal, and one in Iowa. Uh, why, why Iowa? Because there was some work going on in antibiotics there that they were interested in, and they just bought the, they just bought the lab. Right, right. Yes? Yeah. Could you talk about the coup? The coup, yes. yes. Okay, yeah, happy to. Okay, so uh, so now it's 2007 or eight. I can't remember exactly. Vertex is 18 years old. It's, it hasn't had any profits, but they know that they're going to have this um, hepatitis C drug that should be a major breakthrough. And um, throughout most of that time, Boger had a free hand. Um, he, you know, the original board members all left and he had almost hand selected most of the new board members so the he had you know but as he didn't really pay much attention to them as he said to me you know in all of the challenges that you have in building a pharmaceutical industry a pharmaceutical company you know doing anything to please the board just because you serve at their pleasure is not a high priority so he kind of, you know, there, there began to grow a distrust between him and the board. Um, at one point, they were very anxious that he hadn't had a succession plan. So he brought in a guy named Matt Emmons, who was at that time the CEO and chairman of Shire Pharmaceuticals, which has a location around here, because he knew Matt from Merck, and he, Matt was not a scientist. He was a commercial guy, but they saw eye to eye on a lot of things, and Matt had um, done a, an amazing job turning Shire around, and Matt intru Boger introduced Matt Emmons to the board as his, as he said, hit by a bus guy. If I get hit by a bus, this is the kind of guy that you want to have. 
He didn't realize that the bus was going to be the board of directors. No, he, he didn't realize that the bus was going to be the board of directors. Exactly. So he, so Matt gets on the board, and Matt sees that there's this disconnect that they really don't, you know, the Boger and the board don't trust each other, and that Boger's not doing anything to make the situation better, and um, and he's looking ahead. And he sees that you know, pretty soon they're going to have to build out an entire commercial organization. They're going to have to finish the clinical trials. They have to get through the FDA. And, and his analysis was that Boger as founder, and probably no founder, could really manage a company through those kinds of challenges because the people there were not really operating as a team. And, and I saw this myself. The people there, meaning... Okay, so, so you've got, you know, up until 19, 2006, everybody who on the, on the executive team is somebody that Boger had hired and had a strong uh, kind of spoken wheel, spoken and, and uh, hub relationship with. Boger was the hub. Everybody sort of revolved around him. If you really wanted something from Josh, you didn't bring it up in a meeting. You went into Josh's office, and while he was sitting there typing, doing six other things, you would talk to him about your problem. So there was an executive team, but it wasn't really functioning as a team. And Matt recognized that what they were about to face, this you know, becoming an operational company, was going to require more teamwork. And he didn't really think that Boger could pull it off. So he started talking with the other board members about it, and then he, was a, he retired from Shire, and he was starting to get a lot of feelers from, um, from other companies. You know, he was, a, you know, he was a CEO who had managed to either build up or turn around three other biopharmaceutical companies. He was in demand. And discussions, you know, they started looking at the calendar, it's 2007, 2008, they thought they were going to get approval in 2009, 2010, the latest. And, and Matt said, listen, you know, I think you should change leadership now. This sounds a little bit like Dick Cheney, but it's not. You know, the guy sort of choosing himself to, to, for the job. He said, I think you should, you know, either change now or leave Josh in through the launch, but I don't think he's going to really be able to do it. Now, there were people in the organization who felt like, you know, at every step along the way, there was no reason to think that Josh was going to be able to do it. He was a scientist, but he went out and raised billions of dollars. He, you know, he expanded the company in a way that gave it, you know, world-class um, laboratories. You know, that he could certainly have powered through this change as well. But, he, but Emmons's concern convinced enough people on the board that it was time to change. And then Emmons himself was available. He was the hit by a bus guy. This was all accomplished without Boger knowing anything about it. And it was just presented to him as a fait accompli. The chairman just called him to have breakfast over at the Harvard Club in the said, back bay oh, and said, yes. you know, we're making a change. It's, we think it's time to go to Matt. And, and Boger said to me, you know, I didn't think that was a bad idea. I, I was pissed off that they had done this without me, but I, I, I could understand the reason for it. Um, so he, uh, he, Emmons realized Boger's value to the company, and even though none of the other board members wanted to keep Boger on, he insisted. He said, we've got to keep Josh on the board if he's willing to stay. So it was, it was a palace coup. He was ousted. But it ended up being fairly amicable. He's still on the board. So, and he's still, you know, when they have their sales meetings, he, um, you know, he's telepresent. Usually he's not there, but they'll put him up on a screen. He'll, you know, give a rousing, um, encouraging speech to the new sales reps or whoever because he, you know, he 
he's still connected to the company. So it turned out, you know, he wasn't like he was sent to Siberia, but um, so that's really how it unfolded, you know, and I think for the company, um, I, you know, I think Emmons was a great choice. Um, I can't speak for the current leadership. I just don't know enough about what they're doing. So there's there, something um, that you just mentioned fascinates me, and it fascinates me about all sorts of different business cultures, which is that Emmons was working for one pharmaceutical company and on the board of directors of another. I've never understood how they do. They, they you know, they claim to be able to lobotomize themselves so that, um, you know, so that things don't leak across. But I, I, you know, I don't know how that works. Right. But you know, there many biotech no, exe yeah, yeah. pharma executives are on the boards of other companies. I don't right. get it. It's never made sense to me either. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes. Yeah. Well, um, uh, both, if that's possible. Um, you know, I, once I got in, you know, I tried to retreat into the furniture as much as possible. You know, it's like I wouldn't, I mean, if I was in a meeting and peop 12 people around a conference table, I didn't sit at the conference table, I sat over here. And I had my notebook out the whole time and I made sure that it was clear that, you know, I was just taking notes. But, um, but, you know, one of the wonderful things about writing about science that I've discovered is that people are very happy to explain things to you. Um, they want to make sure you get it right. They believe very strongly in what they're doing. Um, so, you know, I would, you know, in, in the moment, try to just blend in as much as possible. And then afterwards, I would go to people and say, you know, can we talk a little bit more about that exchange? I want to understand it better. And then I would get a fuller explanation. And I th one of the ways that I was able to create the illusion, for instance, that I was there between 1994 and 2011 um, was by doing extensive interviews with people and using extended quotes to, you know, and letting people tell in their own words, however technical they may be, what was actually going on. And uh, I think it worked, you know, because I did recognize from the beginning I had a problem. I was there for 93, 94, which were the opening scenes in the, in the antidote, and then I was there in 2011, 2012, but I wasn't there in between, and I wanted there to be a consistency of narrative voice and of, you know, and, and I wanted, to, you know, to keep the book moving and exciting, hopefully, so... You know, uh, it, those middle sections were tough, but because I, you know, because I had been able to be inside and absorb so much, they weren't as tough as they would have been if I was trying to, you know, recreate them afterwards, talking with people who had been there, but having no sense myself for what actually might have gone on. Did you have a yes? Yeah. Um, can you talk about how you develop your ideas? Because I think when one is dating a lot of ideas, uh -huh. you have to know which ones to marry, you know, and how, <laughs> yeah. how do you know what to commit to? Yeah, sure. Um, I think I've been really, really lucky, and um, part of it just has to do with the way my mind works. And I'm not so sure I'm lucky about that, but it, it works. It works for being a reporter. That is, the really good ones—they just don't let you go. I mean, that's been my experience. You know, the the this the Darwin book that I did. You know, I, it was—I remember vividly. It was during the. Um, 
you know, it's kind of the darkest days of the Bush administration, maybe 2004, 2005, the Terry Schiavo story, remember that? It was like, it's like, what is going on in this country that it just is, you know, that, that we just deny science? So, um, you know, I, I, I started thinking, well, you know, is it just religiosity or is there something else? And I, and I started to think, you know, and how can anybody deny evolution through natural selection. It's not a theory. It's been demonstrated over 150 years. You know, so I started thinking about, you know, well, where did this all come from? And I started tracing it back, tracing it back, and I, I got to the Gilded Age. And, and, then it, I, and then I sort of had the big insight, which made me think, I just have to do this book, which is that we're really kind of schizophrenic on the notion of Darwinism, and that it's not just people on the right, it's actually all of us. We tend to, if we, if we believe in evolution through natural selection in the natural world, we tend to bristle or bridle at any, any, any suggestion of social Darwinism. You know, that the same sort of competitive processes are at work in society. And if we, and if we, and if we're social Darwinists, we you know, just as it has, as it breaks out politically, we tend to not accept the truth of evolution in the natural world. And there's this weirdness that I think is unique to the United States. And when I had that idea, then I was like, I, I just really, you know, I'm not going to rest until I figure this out. You know, and then I got, you know, I found some material that made me think, okay, the place and time to locate this is in the Gilded Age. It wasn't really so much Darwin as Herbert Spencer, who was, you know, who really was the the engine for bringing the theory of evolution to the United States, although he was not actually a Darwinist, you know. So, or the, you know, it was the same thing with the book about the the first month of the um, the Ford administration, when 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 Richard the night Richard Nixon announced his resignation, I was living over on Peter Street in Cambridgeport. My then girlfriend, now wife, and I just said, "We got to get outside. We got to, you know, this is huge. This is this is the best thing." You know, this is what we wanted. And we found our way to Harvard Square, and there were 5,000 people snake dancing through Harvard Square, and, and there were people up on the roofs. You know, it was like, it was, like, it was just amazing. And, and I thought at that time, okay, so we've, you know, we've gotten rid of Nixon. We've, you know, after Watergate in Vietnam, the country, it's going to have to move to the left. Well, I couldn't have been more wrong, of course. And, and, I, and it's just like that just kind of burned with me for a long time. What the hell happened that what I, I mean, and part of it was my naivete. I understand that. But I really, felt, I, so I got fixated on this idea of, well, what happened in the White House that first month when Ford took over? And, it, and I knew it was going to be a month because, you know, one month later, Ford pardoned Nixon and, and then he looked like, that looked like the last cynical act of the Watergate cover-up. And then we were into some other territory. So I just really started to think, okay, so uh, this just answer, it's just the ones that just don't let you go. You know, you just have, you keep thinking about them, you try to put them in the drawer, they hop out. Um, you have to, you know, if you're lucky, I think you get a few of these in your lifetime, really. And, you know, and you may have to do a dozen others to get those that just, you know, are so cry out so much to be addressed that you end up thinking, I'm going to have to try to do a book about this. That's the first part. The second part, then, is going to a publisher and convincing them, you know, this is worth doing. <clears throat> and sometimes the ones that you get very passionate about don't interest publishers. So you, you, it's a really two-stage process. 
Have you um, continued to write for magazines? <coughs> I, I find magazine work excruciatingly hard now. I, you know, I did for a lot of years. I wrote for the New Yorker and, and you for find the book work easy. Uh, uh, yeah, easier. Uh, what, how many drafts are you doing now? Yeah, for no, it's true. I mean, okay. I find both like pounding a nail into my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, and and frankly, I, I, so you have control over a book, a magazine. You're at the whim yes. of a million. Different yes, things. that's absolutely true. And I also, I, I think, I hope this isn't true because I, I could see doing a little bit more. But I, I think it's a magazine work is a younger person's game. I mean, there's, there's a lot of young people who are really good at it. Right. And so suddenly I find myself, I'm 61, and you know, it's either you know, let's get worth or let's get this 33-year-old who's hot. And in that competition, I'm not so sure. I mean, unless it's something very specific. You're like Josh, you're like, yeah, I think that's the right choice. <laughs> you know, so I think I may have aged out a bit for right. magazine work. I mean, I did do... Um, I did a piece for MIT Technology Review on drug pricing after I was done with the book because I realized that I hadn't really addressed the pricing issue in the book and that I knew it was a question I was going to get asked. And, and that was a, you know, it, was a, it, wasn't, it wasn't a hang-around piece, but it, it, it was a good narrative piece and it was, you know, I was hap really, really happy to be able to do it. I got great editing and I got great presentation. I was really happy about that. But, I, you know, I just don't know if I'd have the the get up and go to do what you have to do to do a piece for the Times Magazine anymore. Right. You know, I don't know the editors anymore. The, you know, I used to well, know what, them. What, what, do you know who, after Hugo got fired, do you know who the new editor No. Is? I understand, you know, from sources in the that, building that it's that probably going to be a woman. Do you, do they have a new editor? Well, the last I heard, because I'm working there, just before the whole thing went down, uh, was that they had, well, they had these interim like they brought in the Times Magazine people and they, I mean the T Magazine. The oh, really? And then somebody from the news, they were sort of reconceiving what the magazine right. would be given that T Magazine does a lot better. Really? They get a lot more ads. Yeah. And the magazine has not been doing Yeah, well. for the magazine, why would you want to advertise next to like <laughs> genocide and, you know, exactly. <laughs> fashion coverage? So there are, I think there's a lot of, um, soul-searching about what a magazine should be now they are you know and so I think there was like I know Warren Kern it was just under Hugo and Joel um, level level were kind of running it but they it looks I mean they've kept everything in place right yeah no, but I think that, that yeah. it's all going to be redesigned really again I was I would imagine right. with the new because I think that they're gonna I mean it's like not working very well right right, right. <laughs> I know, ever since you left, it's really <laughs> gone into the crap. Um, uh, okay, more? Yes? Yeah. First, thanks for your speech and your work. It's valuable for students and a broad public who is concerned about that. And I'm curious about what was your title in the organization? A journalist, a researcher, or observer? And did you undertake any work? You know, in that organization? You mean in Vertex? In Vertex? No, I hadn't. I, I had a cube. I didn't have a title. Um, you know, I was just um, undercover. <laughs> so it's just your name on the back, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, they, you know, they arranged a special... Uh, I, oh, I might have, you know, uh, okay, so what was on my badge? They did say something. Uh, it may, you know, may have even been consultant. But... Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, that's right. They, they would have had to have put something on. Yeah, I'd have to fish that out and see. But because it, it wasn't just not whipping boy. Or <laughs> no. Like yeah. I don't know how the yes. I, you know, I don't, I don't really know how others work, and you know, I'd love to find out. I, you know, I think the the aspirations are often similar. Um, you know, the pressure inside these places is huge, and a lot of it is self-motivated. You know, I think there are a lot of very idealistic people in the drug industry, scientists. Um, I, I, I don't think that. Big Pharma operates at all the way Vertex does. I think a lot of smaller companies probably try to. I do think that, you know, it, sort of what you become has a lot to do with what you aspire to become. And because, you know, Boger's example was Merck. When, when he left Merck, he went home, spent several weeks with a whiteboard figuring out what he wanted to do. And he wrote down three things. One was make better drugs faster. The second one was build the 21st century biopharmaceutical company. And the third one was become Merck only better. I don't think many small companies start out with the ambition of becoming better than the most admired corporation in America. So because his goals were so enormous um, and because they, because the problem with Merck and with Big Pharma was that they were becoming less and less productive, he had to build something pretty big, pretty fast, and raise a huge amount of money in order to do it. Okay? The failure rate in the, you know, from the time that drug companies begin clinical testing until approval, um, the failure rate is 97%. So only 3% or 4% of all the drugs that are tested in humans actually get to approval. And that's, that's drugs that have reached... That's a, you've already, clinical you've already gotten to clinical... You know, it's, you know, people use the figure 300 to 1 in terms of every, you know, how many ideas do you have, how many projects do you start out with, how many of them actually get to the finish line. Shots on goal is what they refer to. So, you know, so he knew that they were going to have to really increase their hit rate. If it was 1 in 30 for the industry, the only way Vertex was going to survive is if it was 1 in 10. That wasn't going to be 1 in 2. It was going to be 1 in 10. But that, even that was a sizable improvement. So in order to do that, they needed to get and 10. And that's out of drugs going to trial. Right. And so they'd have to get 10 up and running right. pretty fast, which means that they had to go quite wide in their scientific approach and also in their fundraising. So again, you know, Vertex set out with big goals, big, um, you know, big dreams, I guess. And as a consequence, we have what we see today, which is a company that over the last couple of years has had two breakthroughs. Um, they haven't had anything comparable come out of the pipeline that I'm aware of in the last five or six years. So, you know, if they're going to be able to prove that they can do what the industry has not been able to do, which is to create a sustained, productive R&D pipeline, they're going to have to do some things in the next few years to show that they can repeat this success. And, um, you know, as I said, I haven't been there since 2012, so I don't really know what they've got cooking exactly. Um, it's a tough, tough business. I, you know, I, don't, I make claims in the book that it's the toughest business. Um, 
I would like to hear somebody try to persuade me that something else is tougher, given, given the costs, the amount of time that it takes to do things, and the odds of succeeding, and the degree of difficulty at every stage. I, I don't know if there's anything quite as challenging. Um, what's been the reaction to the book from Vertex since it came out? There hasn't been any. I, mean, I haven't heard from anybody. I mean, I do know some so of the. It's been out what for just a couple of weeks. Right? Uh, February fourth. Oh, so February, some, okay, you know, yeah, yeah. six weeks right. uh, officially. Nothing. Nothing. Um, no? they, you know, to their credit, they just moved over to Boston. They've got a lot of other things going on besides my book. Are I'm, you tempted I'm, to call Josh and say? Uh, I've seen Josh. Josh, you know, Josh is very happy with the book, and you know, he he has agreed, for instance, to you know, we're going to I think probably do some joint appearances. But I, you know, I haven't even approached the company yet to right. see whether they'd be interested in something like that. But I, you know, I I think their policy is arm's length, and I think for a journalist that's great. You know, I think it's just as well that they're not embracing me. I, mean, I, w I would be. I'd be worried if they were bear-hugging me right now. Um, I'm not worried at all that I haven't heard a thing from them. I think that's appropriate. And did you have the same arrangement with this book that you did with the first book about proprietary information? I had, yeah, I'd show it again to two people, to Ken Boger, the general counsel, and to Megan Pace, who's the communications person. And um, the, it's interesting. I had lunch with somebody today who was asking me about this. The one thing that they were, there were two things that they were really concerned about. One was I had gone into quite a lot of detail about their supply chain. Um, and and they, they were worried about me identifying their partners. Because the, this drug for hepatitis C, there are five chemical compounds that are manufactured. And then they're, it's a complicated process. It goes all over the world. The, two of the five are manufactured in China. And the, you know, then they're synthesized in Northern Ireland. And they, go to, they have to go into a spray dry a dispersion process in Portugal. And anyhow, I went into a lot of, it's really fascinating, I thought, because you, you get the pill and you just think it's a pill. It's been around the world. And um, they were very concerned about the detail in which um, I was writing about that. So I backed off on that some. And then there was just, um, there was like one thing that they just couldn't get out of their heads. I think it really worried them. I think just maybe because of the way that it sounded. Um, they, they launched this hepatitis C drug, and it was the fastest drug launch in history. At the same time, their stock dropped 50% because um, analysts were suggesting that they weren't going to have this franchise very long and that another class of drugs was going to come along. And that two or three years out, they had a big, big problem. And then there was a moment when um, the, the, the organization that tracks drug sales I think it's, I don't remember what it's called now. I think it's called IMF, but I'm not sure. The organization that tracks drug sales made a mistake, and maybe eight weeks out or 10 weeks out, um, released estimates that said that their drug was actually losing steam. And this was a real worry to the company, because um, if, if, you know, if your drug crests at 10 weeks out and then levels off, you're in big trouble. So they, they, you know, the CEO of Vertex called the CEO of, of uh, Caremark CVS, which was involved in the problem, and the head of this company. They got it corrected. But they had to go to investors and explain to them that they had their own figures. They knew what was leaving the loading dock in Cincinnati, and that it actually had not topped out. It was still increasing at this rate. And, and the chief financial guy 
Ian Smith uh, said to me, he said, we had to go to them and, and play the trust me card. Well, this, maybe because of all the other problems in pharma, this notion of the trust me card really, really worried them. And they, they fought for a long time I mean, to try to... They just didn't want you to say that they, the, called, the, it the the, that they called it the trust me card. And they oh. deserve to be trusted. They had more accurate information than this. Well, what were they worried that was going to... That the trust me card just sounded so bad, that right. it just sounded like, oh, you know, don't worry, don't worry about the data. It's like, like Merck and, and Vioxx, Vioxx, so just right, trust right. us. Right. You know? That, so, and I but think... It, I mean, couldn't you... By, 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 couldn't you they, they played the trust me card, but then you can show that the trust me card was accurate. Yeah, so I did. Not, yeah, I did. Right. But, uh, so, but I think it was a hypersensitivity on their part about, you know, looking the least bit sleazy. Right. And uh, I, I didn't interpret it as sleazy, but they seemed to. So those were the two things. Um, there was, you know, otherwise there was nothing else that they really campaigned to get out of the book. You know, right. it's pretty much the way I gave it to them. Other questions? So what are you, what are you thinking about right now? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the dust to settle. Um, uh, Do you enjoy this part of, of writing a book? This part? Talking about it afterwards. Um, you know, I, uh, we can talk about the marketing, which is a whole other situation. But um, enjoy? I'm starting to. I mean, you know, the, frankly, the... The, my last book was in 2009. As I said, I got, I got 20 fabulous reviews and the book didn't sell. So uh, I got disabused of the notion that reviews are what makes oh, the yeah. difference. Oh, I was disabused of that notion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you still want to get reviews. It just, you know, it's like you want to, it, it feels like part of the prize for getting the book out. But I have discovered now we are in a whole different world. I mean, it really is much more about clicks and eyeballs. And I've, you know, so I've done a lot of media stuff, and that's been good. But I also, uh, you know, I, I, I realized that this book is, you know, on, it, I, it's meant for a number of audiences. I mean, it's, I wrote it with my mom in mind, who knows nothing about this and reads only thrillers and novels. But I also wrote it with the, you know, the people who are extremely familiar with this world because I want them to also think that it's credible and correct. And so I, I um, we have another minute because I could tell yeah. it. I, okay. Yeah. When you publish a book, somewhere along the way they send you an author's questionnaire. Right. And they say to you, okay, um, what's it about? Who's going to be interested? Why? What other books are there who out can there? You personally sell who, yes, yes, exactly. You know, who can you enlist to maybe write blurbs? The works, you know. And and in the past, I've always thought, hey, that's their job. Right. Well, I real I realized that it's my job, and I I took a week off last March, and I wrote a marketing plan for Simon and Schuster. And I and one of the questions they ask is, well, you know, what are other comparable books? What other pharma books are there that we might look at as a measure of and I said, forget about all those books. I, I, said, I said, this is, I'm a little embarrassed to say this. I said, this is Moneyball meets the Emperor of All Maladies. No, mine was um, Moneyball meets. <laughs> I mean, I was writing about baseball, so okay. I had a little okay. bit more. Okay, all right. <laughs> but, but I had a Moneyball meet something. So, you know, but I said, you know, this is, a, I think this is kind of unique. I think it's really unique that I've, this is the second book that I've done, so that I think, 
So, and there are concentric circles. So the first group of people that I think we really need to appeal to are the people who are most interested in this world and who also may know the billion dollar molecule would be willing to, you know, and there are a lot of enthusiastic people around who like the billion dollar molecule. So I think that's our core. But then beyond that, there's the whole innovation sector. And then beyond that, there's anybody who's interested in business. And then beyond that, there's all these people who are, you know, care about how, you know, how our, you know, how we come up with new treatments for diseases, and then beyond that, there's everybody. And um, they pretty much bought it. You know, they, they reissued the first book with a new introduction. I was thrilled about that. And it's a big commitment. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's a 20-year-old book, and, you know, they don't often do that. Um, so I, I'm enjoying this one more, certainly, than the last one. Um, and, and I think I realize that I have more of an obligation to speak about this than I've realized in the past. You know, when you write a book, you kind of think the goal is writing the book. But then you, if you've done your job, you know some things that not a lot of other people know just because they've never had the opportunity or the time or the inclination to really investigate what you've investigated. And then if you think it's important at all, um, you have, you're obligated to go out there and sell it. So um, I, I'm much more at peace with that than, right. I, than I used to be. I used to think it was their job to sell it. I've realized that's not really the, that nobody can sell it as well as you can. And that if, if, you know, if you've concluded that what you've done is significant, it's your job to, to go out there and do it. So I, I, I wouldn't say enjoy is the right word, but I just feel I'm much more committed to it and I feel like it's the right thing to do and I'm right. happy to do it. I, I think um, I would love to see someone actually title a book, Moneyball Meets. I'm going to strive for that for my next book. Like, Moneyball Meets the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. So how could that fail? Yeah. Um, that's your next title. That's, no, that is my title. What are you working on? Moneyball Meets the Immortal Life of Henrietta Or just Moneyball Meets Hila. It's shorter. Yeah, right. Um, uh, all right. Are there, before we wrap up, are there any last questions? No? All right. Well, um, uh, before I say thank you so much, uh, we do have a reception um, that we need to snake through this building to get to. Uh, so if you want to go to the reception, just stick around and we'll all snake through. Um, thank you so much for coming. Thank uh, you for having me. It was, uh, thank you. It was wonderful um, uh, to, to hear about your work on both of these books. Um, and it was, it's great to meet you after having been a fan of your work. Thanks. Right. Thanks a lot.